0: You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. Hi, everyone. On today's episode, I'm talking to Julie Moreno, an assistant professor in the Prion Research Center here at CSU. Dr. Moreno researches neurodegenerative diseases of aging specifically the mechanisms that prompt neurons and other brain cells to become inflamed, leading to Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. We discuss the processes that happen in the brain throughout neurodegeneration and what Dr. Moreno's lab is doing to test potential therapies to slow down or reduce neurodegenerative disease. Finally, we talk about a new drug called Adjuhelm, that was approved by the FDA in early June for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. What it is and why there's a debate surrounding it. For now, I'll leave you to Dr. Moreno and a story about her grandmother. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University.
1: My grandmother was a beautiful, intelligent and strong woman. And I looked up to her for sure a lot. Um, she taught me to always have fun. So she, she was just this really beautiful woman that was always laughing and the life of the party kind of person. And so, um, yeah, she so she always taught me to have fun no matter what you're doing and always put pepper on everything. So she would put black pepper on everything and, She taught me that when I was really small to put it on my eggs when I was like four and my mom was like, what are you doing? She's too young for pepper. But anyways, I love peppers. So, (laughs) um, but anyways, so as she became older, her health declined, um, like for most of us and her ability to remember who I was, um, and that I was actually not my mother and that I was my mother's daughter, um, happened when I was in grad school and, um, Pretty quickly on, we realized that she had dementia. Um, So she didn't have Alzheimer's, but she did have um, a form of dementia. And she would tell all these wonderful stories during this time um, from the past about flying off with my grandfather to see these faraway lands. They traveled a lot. Um, But she couldn't remember what she ate for breakfast. So she couldn't remember the past. She thought, because I look a lot like my mom, that I was my mom. Um, So she had that, that hard... Um, thing to watch, right? You knew that they were there. Um, she was there and she would, wanted to be with me, but she wasn't real sure who I was. And so um, I think a lot of us probably listening to this podcast have, have had a similar situation. And I think that this is really hard and really why I think my research and others that do research like mine are so important. So neurodegenerative diseases affect 50 million people. And people in America a year um, and that's just the people that are diagnosed that doesn't include the caregivers right so the caregivers are actually affected a whole lot more than the patients themselves um, these diseases strike people from mid to late life so it's definitely an age a disease of age and unfortunately with our aging population it's thought that um, by 2030 one out of five people will actually suffer from a neurodegenerative disease um, over the age of 65. And currently, and I know this is something we'll be kind of talking about today, but there's no treatment and there's definitely no cure for these diseases. Um, right now, there are some drugs that are out there that help with symptoms, um, but eventually, um, the people with the patients with these diseases succumb for, to the disease.
0: Right. And so, Your area of research is neurodegeneration kind of at Mm -hmm. the cellular level. So I wonder if you could take us through what does that look like when you're at the cellular level studying neurodegeneration? What kind of processes are you studying?
1: Right. So I would think in the last decade or so, we've really been able at the cellular level to kind of map out what's happening by using laboratory models such as mice. Um, to really map out what happens early in disease and goes down to the late form of disease. So um, depending on who you ask, there's there's a number of things that happen pretty early in disease. Um, The order of events can sometimes be skewed, but you do have these early markers, um, things like proteins misfolding. So uh, for Alzheimer's, you would think of like amyloid beta or phosphorylation in the tau um, inflammation also occurs. So there's, there's three, three, four um, different cell types in, within the brain. Um, of course we all know neurons, but there also are some other cells called microglia and astrocytes. And then there's also oligodendrocytes. but, um, microglia and astrocytes are known to be inflamed early on in disease as well. And when you get this inflammation, you can get a lot of those free radicals, Um, oxidative stress, those kind of signaling events can occur. And also mitochondrial dysfunction will, will be a player as well pretty early on, again, causing more inflammation, more oxidative stress. And all of these type of things, so if you get an increase of proteins that are toxic, like the misfolded proteins, you get inflammation of the cells producing free radicals. And all of this can make it difficult for neurons to talk to each other. So their cell-to-cell communication is also affected, um, and so as that accumulates in your brain. So you know, if you have a couple cells that do this, and you lose a couple neurons from from talking to each other, you're okay. Um, it's thought that you have to lose about sixty percent of your neurons functioning um, before you actually see clinical symptoms of Alzheimer's or dementia, and so. Um, you can live without neurons um, with, you know, we all probably have some um, neurons not working well, but it's when you get to a point where there's a ton of neurons that aren't firing right, that you really start to go, what is wrong with me? I can't remember things. And maybe I'm um, not able to move my legs. Like I used to. um, And it feels like it's my brain not working right, which is more Parkinson's disease. Like, and so um, later on, you'll start to lose those neurons and that's where it's irreversible. We, we know that it's very difficult to go ahead, to replace those lost neurons.
0: So when you say losing neurons, are these neurons actually dying or is it just they're not firing correctly? It's it's impaired cell communication.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think the best way to think about it is that early on the neurons aren't able to, to communicate together. Um, and fire, but as that um, continues, then they start to die. So they kind of um, they'll start to die at their processes. So their their axons are reaching out to the other cells, and when those start to die, um, it's a process of time. So eventually, the cell body, so the thing that keeps the neuron alive, will die as well. So it's definitely a process over
0: time. Right. And so what is this progression like? What would you say early onset dementia looks like and and maybe later signs of dementia and other forms of neurodegeneration?
1: That's a good question too. Um, So early on, I think clinically, I mean, when the cells start to really inflame and produce these free radicals and oxidative stress and the proteins are misfolded, I would say early on, you don't even, clinically, you wouldn't even know. So it could be happening to me right now, and I wouldn't, I would be normal and be able to function normally. Um, so I think that early on, though, it would start with, um, so once you do get to a point where you've lost enough neurons to actually have a clinic, clinical symptom, um, it may be like, you were driving to the grocery store and then all of a sudden you're at Home Depot and you're like, why did I come to Home Depot? I was going to the grocery store. So those are kind of, kind of earlier, but that could also just happen because you're stressed and, you know, you've had a rough week. So you do the wrong thing like that. But, you know, I think it's like accumulation of lots of little things that get people to go to the clinic. And then later on, it's more like my story that I told you about my grandmother where she didn't know who I was.
0: You know, for people who have listened to this podcast in the past, some of these terms that you're saying would sound familiar, um, of the hallmarks of aging that we've talked about in our Mm -hmm. earlier episodes, um, you know, impaired cellular communication and cellular senescence, senescence cells that are dying. So can you talk a little bit about how neurodegeneration connects to the hallmarks of aging and maybe which hallmarks it it gets involved with?
1: Yeah. So, um. I think seeing the list of nine hallmarks of aging really encompasses, they're encompassed within neurodegeneration. All of them are. Um, And that's why I think when we went through the process of how these cells start to die, the neurons start to die. I mean, basically all of these ideas are happening within the brain, Um, maybe in astrocytes and microglia first, which then is toxic to the neurons. So, it's a process. So it happens over time. But yeah, I mean, I think things like we know that telomeres are shortened in generation. We know that we have mitochondrial dysfunction, um, cellular senes- senescence, um, the communication of the cells um, is halted. And it's all due to this idea that at first you get this increase of these toxic proteins that are misfolded and inflammation occurring. And then a lot of these things, kind of downstream of that, a lot of these other things can happen. Did I answer yeah. that okay? Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. no. Okay. <laughs> Something that I'm wondering is, you know, we've we've had an episode about cognitive decline before, and one of the takeaways from that episode, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Nun Study from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm, that you can, you know, your brain can have all the signs, like the physiological signs of. Plaques and neurodegeneration, right. but you may not present with Alzheimer's or Correct. dementia. Can mm. you explain how that happens? How, like, what what makes someone have Alzheimer's or dementia? And someone who can live healthily with those right. things happening.
1: Well, I think you have to have a combination of these things. Like, you can't, you don't just have plaques. Um, so those A-beta positive plaques, then themselves. Are not toxic? Are they? They're not always toxic, is I guess the best way to say that. And so it's this idea that your brain has has these misfolded proteins that, and then they might have some inflammation. And so another term I would use is the cellular stress. So the stress on the cell. Some people are going to be more susceptible to that. Maybe some people's environment might have made them more susceptible to that. so yeah, I think that definitely um, they say that people that are just aging with no dementia, they can do autopsies and see those A-beta plaques and they're, they were fine. So I guess it takes more than one pathology in order to really see dementia or
0: Alzheimer's. Yeah. And the NUN study was famous in part because the nuns led very healthy lives and adopted very healthy behaviors and somehow that had a protective mechanism for them. Definitely.
1: They probably weren't um, smoking cigarettes and drinking all the time. (laughs)
0: Right. (laughs) Certainly not. Yeah. So, Another facet of your research gets into how we target these cellular responses in in ways to slow down or reduce neurodegeneration, kind of like a therapeutic lens. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the therapies that you've tried to, you know, come up with interventions for?
1: Yeah. So I think before I dive into that, I think it's important for us to really understand how we study neurodegeneration. It's difficult, right? Because it's a disease of age. And, um, mice are usually our go-to laboratory animal and they don't always age the same way that humans do. And they're definitely not exposed to the same things and environmental aspects that, that humans are just cause they don't live as long too. You know, the, their, their age is about two years, um, maybe a little longer, but, um, so, so a lot of what I've done in the past has been on cells in a, cell, in, a, in a dish from a mouse um, or mice themselves. And so um, we can understand these diseases a whole lot better um, or a whole lot through these mechanisms of using cells in a dish or um, mice. Um, and, but then I think more and more, we're also looking into different models for aging um, and specifically neurodegeneration. But I think first, if we, if we were to look at what we know about what we found in a dish or in mice, we've seen, um, I've actually done a, quite a bit of work looking at prion diseases. And prion diseases, of course, um, they're, they're very rare. So not um, they say one in a million um, people actually get the disease. Um, and then it's also a disease that affects animals. So a lot of hunters um, know about chronic wasting disease in deer and elk. But prion diseases are really interesting because they are a neurodegenerative disease that is naturally occurring um, that we can actually model in the laboratory. And so um, the reason I wanted to mention this was because what's important about, about the laboratory models is we need to have um, models that allow us to see the process, like I talked about earlier, that's happening in humans, but also in our laboratory. And so um, one of those ways to do that for neurodegeneration generation is using prion diseases. So we can take mice, um, give them prion disease, and they will have the same things that happen to humans um, in their brains. And so the mice are a really good way for us to study this. And by doing this, we've been able to identify some cell signaling events that occur that cause these neurons to die. And so through that mechanism, we've been able to identify um, some treatments that may be helpful for humans. Um, And so one of those is trazodone. Um, We found that trazodone inhibited um, the unfolded protein response, which is a cell signaling event that occurs during neurodegeneration. And when I say neurodegeneration, I use it as a broader term because we found that this trazodone not only um, was helpful um, in prion diseases, but also in a model, a mouse model um, of tauopathy, which is sort of like um, a dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And so that's a really good one that might be um, helpful for humans. Um, And then... We also have a stem cell um, project where we're using that, again, that prion disease model because we know um, what's nice about prion disease is that the mice have like a natural disease that causes those neurons to die. And we know exactly at what time point they'll actually have the disease and what kind of pathologies occur. And so it's easier for us to kind of use it as a, a stepping point before we go into maybe higher order organisms. And so we have a stem cell project where um, I collaborate with Dr. Zabel on this project. And um, basically what we, what we think we can do, and we've been able to show in a dish that if we take stem cells from fat and expose them to glial cells that are infected with prions, and glial cells, again, are those helper cells for neurons. So if we expose those helper cells to... Um, to these stem cells, the stem cells will secrete anti-inflammatory things. And these anti-inflammatory things will help it so those glial cells are no longer toxic to the neurons. And so we're in the process of trying this. We did it in a dish. It looked really promising. And so now we're trying it in the mouse model with prion disease. And so we can use these kind of real laboratory based models in order to find targets or therapies um, like the stem cell therapies or the target, um, like using trazodone, which is a small molecule, um, in order to, to, to then hopefully take it to a larger organism, higher order organism. And that the reason I keep saying that is because we also are, um, just recently I, I, have a collaboration with Dr. McGrath, um, Stephanie McGrath over at the VTH, so the Veterinary Teaching Hospital. She's a neurologist, and she studies um, canine cognitive dysfunction. And so we've started a collaboration where we're taking things like trazodone um, and trying this in dogs that actually have cognitive decline. So now we've taken something that we've used really basic research to develop this idea that these are or interventions that we can apply to a higher order organism like dogs. The advantage of dogs is, again, they are also naturally occurring disease. So they they say about 35% of dogs over the age of eight will have cognitive decline syndrome, which is basically, it's also sometimes called doggy dementia. And so... Um, not only with these studies would we be helping the dogs that are getting these diseases, but also the closeness that dogs have to Alzheimer's disease is so similar. Um, and unlike the mice, they're exposed to the same environment. Um, kind of your exercise regime, usually if you exercise, so does your dog. Those kind of things, we're able to take what we've learned from the mice and the, and the cells in the dish and bring that over to a dog. And um, then hopefully that would translate really well to the humans as well. So, um, yeah, so we've got some really, I think, kind of fun and exciting targets out there. Um, And we really are just using what we've learned and then kind of translating it to dogs and then hopefully into humans.
0: This is another example for our listeners of why we talk so much about dogs as sentinels for human aging, because, you know yet another professor is telling me that the lifestyle of a dog is useful for them to do their Mm -hmm. research with. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Yes. And so before we get too far away from different kinds of therapies and interventions, I did want to ask you about this new FDA approval for the, Mm -hmm. a new drug for Alzheimer's. Um, basically since, almost 20 years ago has the last yeah. drug for Alzheimer's been approved by the FDA. It's called Adjuhelm. I think it happened a couple weeks ago. It was approved by the FDA, but it's pretty controversial of a, of an approval mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. So I wonder if you can, you know, tell us about Adjuhelm. What is, what are the mechanisms behind it and why is it controversial that it's been approved?
1: Yeah. So, um, it's kind of fun to talk about this because it is so controversial. I actually teach a class um, on pharma, pharmaceutical regulation. So knowing how the FDA works is actually really important for even my students to understand due to things like this. So aduhelm is an antibody that targets amyloid beta. So those are those plaques, those sticky plaques that you, you just mentioned about the nuns. Um, having that amyloid beta in their brains. But also dogs with canine cognitive decline will have that. Humans with dementia or Alzheimer's disease, I should say and Alzheimer's disease would have those plaques. Um, And how it works is it basically, let's say if you have your plaque, you basically have an antibody come in And not allow it to keep producing whatever or making more of that plaque. So it's kind of blocking that plaque. And um, the idea is that, that these plaques, if you inhibit these plaques, that you could reduce memory and cognitive loss. So those symptoms in the clinic that these humans are having, you would hope that that amyloid beta would be inhibited and then you wouldn't have as much. Um, symptoms. Um, I say you you wouldn't and you couldn't kind of thing because it's super controversial. Um, one of the reasons that scientific, like on a science level or cellular level, why I think it's the most controversial for, in my opinion, is the fact that, like you said, the nuns had amyloid beta and it didn't make Alzheimer's disease. Um, and that's true with Lots of people that are aging. And so targeting amyloid beta, although it may help for some people, um, it helping everyone is probably unlikely. I mean, and then I think another reason that it's super controversial is that does it work in the first place? So to me and in, in my reading and my understanding of this, of course, I wasn't part of any of these studies, but that, we're just not real sure that it works. So there was one. So there was two different studies, both in phase three clinical trials. So phase three is usually above ten thousand people, or around ten thousand people will actually get the get the drug. And um, basically, one of them thought it worked, and the other didn't. And so, in my world, scientifically. That makes me a little nervous, right? If one study works and one doesn't. So there's that. Another reason it's really controversial is because it does have a pretty severe side effect um, from my understanding because it can cause like brain bleeds. Um, And I don't, I honestly don't know like what the percentage of that was, but that's something that you would definitely want to take into account. Um, however, fair enough. My grandmother, like I said in my first story, we—I might have tried her on this drug just because there was some brain bleeding. I mean, you would rather them remember you than the risk is probably pretty slim, right? Um, so, so I get—I get that as being there's side effects to everything, so that might not be a big controversial for some. Um, the other big controversy that actually affects most of us is the cost. So, um, and a lot of that has to do with the, with the drug, I believe, um, I was listening to one, one story about this and they said it'd be $56,000 per, per, um, treatment and that you would need the treatment once a month. And it would be brain infusion or blood infusions. And so you would have to do it in a doctor's office, which costs money. Um, also, due to the side effects, you would have brain scans, which we all know cost lots of money. So, um, so overall, for it being controversial, it, it seems expensive, right? So I would say that, at least for me and my – if we go back to my story of my grandmother, being expensive would have been an issue – but if it was for sure going to possibly help her, then you do what you have to do, right? Like, I, I think that that's where a lot of people would fall into. But with it being controversial, that makes it a little more like, oh, my God, and now it's expensive. So what do we do, you know? But I do think it's important to remember that Biogen, which is the company that, that's working with this drug, um, is going to do a post-approval study to look at cognitive results in more in depth. And I think that's really important. Um, I'm I'm really hoping that 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 goes well. I mean, of course, that would be my my hope um, that it does work and that it does help people have cognitive increase of cogni of cognition, not loss of cognition. Um, but yeah, I think mechanistically, like as a scientist, and I always look at amyloid beta in my mice, and we look at amyloid beta in the dogs, but we also know that it's not the key toxicant in the brain. So that's also scientifically makes it controversial.
0: So it sounds like it's not a game changing drug for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, at least not at this point. Yeah. I think that that's okay to say that. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And another thing I want to bring up about this, you know, you and I talked about this a little bit in our last call of there's so many different aspects of neurodegeneration that you can target with mm-hmm. a drug. That right. just because we have this one drug, adjuhelm, doesn't mean that you know your research is any less significant. Like you need to right. continue this because Alzheimer's is likely going to be a disease that you have to target from multiple, you know, right. vantage points.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think of breast cancer when I think about this idea that there's very few diseases out there that you just treat with one magic pill, right? So if you take cancer, for example, breast breast cancer specifically, you need, usually you have the tumor removed, so you have surgery, then you have radiation and maybe chemo combined. And then you also, if you have um, breast cancer, you usually take something like tamoxifen, which is going to inhibit your estrogen receptors for five years. So I, I, I use it as an example where neurodegeneration and, and the field as a whole hasn't gotten there yet, right? We... We are trying to find treatments, but at the same time, we know that more than likely we will have to co- use com- combined treatments. There's not going to be, like if you, I'd be shocked, I w- it would be awesome, but well, I'll be shocked if we just can have one thing that we inhibit, um, that master regulator of disease. I don't know if is quite gonna be there. I think we'll have to use different drugs, different timing of drugs. So if we go back to the idea that it's an aging process that you have pretty early on in life, so it may take 20 to 30 years to actually see a clinical sign, wouldn't it be great if we could kind of prevent things from, from going to that neuronal loss? And so you might need to take some, some d- different drugs, when you're in your forties or fifties and then some different drugs when you're in your seventies, that's just me kind of throwing that out there. So there's definitely a lot more work that needs to be done.
0: Knowing what you know of the field of neurodegeneration, do you have any predictions? Like, do you think in our lifetimes we're going to see more effective drugs come on the market?
1: I'm really hopeful. Um, I do think I have two young daughters, and I, I really am hopeful by the time that they're aged, that maybe we'll have some some drugs out there, um, for treatments. I, I am cautious when I talk about that because I, we do have a lot more work to do, but I would I'm hopeful that at least in my children's lifetime that we'll be able to, to get some good good treatments, and I think diagnostics too. So I think we need some better diagnostics for those early time points, because the earlier that we can treat these patients that may already have amyloid beta, for example, or inflammation, um, then that's going to be more helpful, right? Um, they're definitely the quicker we can get people on a treatment, the better they'll be.
0: Right. It's a nice (laughs) takeaway at the end of this episode that there is hope. (laughs) I do.
1: I I really do believe that there is hope for sure. So, and there's lots of researchers researching these very questions. So um, if we can keep that up, that will be the best, best thing we can do.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. So last question, the question that I ask everyone who comes on the show What is your best advice for healthy aging from your perspective and what you research? Yeah. Um,
1: So I do think, and maybe not my research, but going back to this idea of hope, um, at least for me personally, I think taking a positive attitude towards it and knowing that there are people out there trying to research this. If, If I was a person, if I go back to my grandmother it if I was dealing with that right this second, I mean, she's, she's passed away, but I, I think that it would be nice for me to always remember that there are people researching it. And although it might not happen in her lifetime, that maybe eventually it will. And that that's all we can really hope for, you know? Um, I mean, there's a lot out there on being just positivity, being healthy, like being more positive is going to keep you healthier. So, and that's totally true for your brain because your brain is what affects you, right? Like the, if you're more positive, your brain, your cells are going to be happier, have less of that cellular stress accumulating in your brain. And so, yeah, I think, I think having a positive attitude, even when there are people all around us that af- are afflicted by these diseases.
0: So you're telling me that the power of positive thinking could potentially keep my cells from killing other neurons. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm hopeful. I don't know. <laughs> Probably not, but at least you could try to be help. I don't know. Trying to be positive is good.
0: I I'm think. sure there there has to be something you know yeah, yeah, evidence yeah. based behind I mean, they that. Say,
1: like laughing and you know, like just I don't know. I yeah. this is a hard question for me. I told you that the other day, but I mean, I <laughs> I it's it's hard only because I know that it's. People are studying this, but we don't know for sure what really helps us age, you know?
0: Right, right. As this podcast shows, there's so many different ways you can understand aging. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, Julie, thank you for the last 30 minutes. This was a great conversation. I feel like I understand neurodegeneration a lot more than I did 30 minutes ago. Oh, good. I'm so (laughs) glad. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, mission accomplished. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.